the most sophisticated child sex abuse procurement and facilitation organization the world has known. Sexual abusers, especially the most prolific ones, they can't do this unless they're facilitated in some manner. You know, uh, the worst ones in the world are people that you would never suspect. What, what, what better way to, to groom than through your public persona? I feel like the, the determination of whether or not justice was served really falls in the hands of the survivors. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to Parallel Justice. In our previous episode, we set the stage with our guests on how they represent clients in huge cases. But what about the actual cases of Bill Cosby, Brett Kavanaugh, Michael Jackson, Harvey Weinstein, and Kobe Bryant? We're back today with John Clune, Vince Finaldi, and Kristen gibbons bedden I want to start today with John, actually, and your representation of Debbie Ramirez against Brett Kavanaugh. Continuing talking about the Kavanaugh proceedings, the external political environment was just so highly charged as it was. We had a president who had nominated the Supreme Court justice and that president was already facing some pretty serious allegations himself. How does that impact how you proceed in these? And is it different in a case versus in a Senate confirmation hearing? What do you do in these cases? Yeah, so I mean, I think that one thing that's different about something like representing um, Debbie Ramirez in the in the um, Kavanaugh confirmation and an actual legal case is, you know, the media is a big driver of what politicians will do, um, and even the president, who you know is can be very defiant at times, particularly in the face of 
you know, more, um, you know, uh, left-leaning media, uh, media is still important to them. So in that particular case, you know, getting the, getting the word out, getting, you know, on the networks um, and, you know, doing interviews and, you know, I think that was something that was important. I mean, even if it's, even if you're trying to reach, you know, just a, you know, one or two members of the Senate Judiciary Committee to maybe sway them that they're doing the wrong thing by moving forward in this fashion, or that, you know, I, would, I did a couple of interviews with, or there's one interview in particular with Anderson Cooper where he was saying to me, you know, he was saying to me, well, you, you know, you keep saying that you want an FBI investigation, but that's never going to happen. And I, and I, you know, and I was telling him, like, I was like, you know, I, I don't know that that's never going to happen. I mean, that's the only thing logical that can happen. And we kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and we ended up, you know, getting a, uh, you know, a sham of an FBI investigation, but you know we got some measure of FBI investigation. Our client was able to interview. So, in that circumstance, in that case, doing the media um, is something that you could do to directly impact, you know, the potential end game, which wasn't necessarily to get him to not be confirmed. I mean, that wasn't our client's goal. Um, but it was to, you know, once the information was out there, to get it to at least be investigated and taken seriously as part of the confirmation process. So the media in that regard uh, was the best vehicle to do that. And your client, Ms. Ramirez, in that case, was just famously hesitant. It was well documented. She really did not want to come out and speak about her assault at first because she believed there were gaps in her memory. There were other issues that, that she was very forthright about. How do you help her navigate those those issues that she she's self-identifying? Yeah, so I mean, she you know she had moved on with her life. She's you know she lives here in Boulder, and she was in her office one day when you know she got a, a call from um, from Ronan Farrow, who she didn't know uh, obviously, and um, and then had another message from the Washington Post, and she ends up talking to Ronan, and you know he says. Um, something about her being sexually assaulted by, by Brett Kavanaugh, and she didn't even know what he was talking about at first, because uh, it wasn't it wasn't actually you know what you would traditionally describe as a sexual assault. So then when he explained it to her, she was like, "Oh, that," and she had to, and she's like, "Yeah, that's that, that did happen," but it was 35 years ago, and so you know, as I was representing her, I was trying to think back to like my college days, which were 35 years ago. And think about like, okay, I went to this party, like how much could I describe about that party? And it was very, very difficult. So the great thing about Debbie is that she was so, you know, incredibly candid about what she did recall, what she didn't recall, what was fuzzy. So what, what she, what, and, and she had another attorney, um, Stan Garnett, who I joined uh, about a week into it, but Stan was working with her trying to walk her through what had happened. And then she reached out to some of her friends and she was like, do you guys remember what happened? Because she was thinking if other people remember it differently that she's not coming, she's not gonna say anything. If there's a chance that her memory is faulty, she'll just, um, you know, she'll, she'll just stand down and not say anything. But so, you know, just being, you know, embracing and giving her the support to just be incredibly blatant and candid as she can be, she would have done that anyway, because that's just who the, who she is as an individual. But she, you know, like Vince was saying, like that's the ultimate weapon. Just just be truthful. Just say what you do recall and say what you don't recall and 
what's fuzzy and what's strong and, and, and you'll do a great job. And that's what she did. Did she feel that she had achieved a measure of justice in being able to come forward? She did. And it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, she wasn't asking to come forward, you know, by the time, you know, Ronan Farrow and the Washington Post are calling you, the, the message was clear that this was coming out. Um, and, um, and so she, she had the ability to either embrace it and try to have some influence on the story to get it more accurate or just let people talk about her. And so she, she embraced it. But I think I'll tell you what was very cathartic for her was the day that we um, interviewed with the FBI. And, you know, the FBI has been highly criticized for conducting a sham investigation, but I'll tell you the agents that responded and interviewed her were not only um, fantastic, just, you know, regular, you know, special agents in the field, but they were, they were very candid and said, look, you know, I promise you anything that we're assigned to do, we'll do it to the best of our ability. Um, but right now, this is all we've been asked to do. And I think that's, that's how it ended up. But I think having that experience was very validating. I mean, the FBI said to us at the end, one of the agents at the end of us like, said, I, this won't show up in a report. It's not our job to determine credibility, but you know, she's very credible. And I think that was just a, a really meaningful experience because you know, some, somebody in a position of authority listened to her and was validating about her account. That's fantastic. I want to shift gears completely and go to Vince. In 2016, you publicly stated Michael Jackson and a select few managing agents, employees of MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures Inner Circle designed, developed, and operated what is most likely the most sophisticated child sex abuse procurement and facilitation organization the world has known. Since that statement in 2016, what have you learned about how that ring operated? And can you give us a general overview of that ring? Because I believe it's beyond what many of us have heard about Michael Jackson. Sure, sure. Um, so I actually learned of this before I made the statement. So it's not something I've learned since 2016. It's something I learned before then. And, you know, I learned it uh, through gathering information in our investigation uh, that was publicly available and from our clients. Uh, we learned that Michael Jackson was spending a large majority of his time, as predators do, finding victims. Um, you know, and, and this is something we've seen in many, many different cases. Uh, we've, we've had cases involving, for example, priests who were sent up to Alaska, to the farthest parts of Alaska, after they had been accused and basically kicked out of their communities. Um, they dropped them in these locations where these natives lived. And there are some priests that, that, that ravaged every single boy uh, within a certain age range in the entire community. Uh, and through putting together timelines, we were able to find out that, that this person was spending the majority of his time procuring, grooming, and sexually abusing kids. And so the job was just a corollary to that. A job was just a, a way um, to, to facilitate their abuse. That's exactly what we're seeing with, with the Jackson case. He was spending the majority of his time with kids, finding kids, flying kids around, buying kids things, sending faxes to kids, on the phone with kids. His, his entire life 
was 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 spent dealing with kids, and not only him, uh, also the people in his organization. So he had his executive assistants, his security guards. They were taking kids to locations, buying them things, ushering them places, getting them uh, hotel rooms, getting their parents hotel rooms, taking their parents to to offsite locations so that he could be alone with the children. It was a it was a it was a huge organization. Um, something that's important to understand is. A lot of times people say, well, you know, he's this famous guy. There was people always around him. There's no way he could have sexually abused because people would have known. They don't understand that sexual abusers, especially the most prolific ones, they can't do this unless they're facilitated in some manner. And it's usually uh, through some type of an entity or organization, either knowingly or unknowingly. Second of all, um, you know, one of the first things people say is, but he was so nice and he did so much, so many good things. And, you know, there's just no way he could have done it. Um, that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about abusers. You know, they see that, you know, they remember what they saw on TV from back in the 80s and the 70s. And they're expecting this, you know, ogre uh, who's lurking in the shadows waiting to sexually abuse someone. And that's not who the general sexual abuser is, you know, uh, the worst ones in the world are people that you would never suspect. Um, they're, they're nice, they're engaging, they're charismatic, and they do great things for a lot of people, but they also ravage children and sexually abuse them. And that's, that's one of the ways that they're able to do that is because they have this demeanor and this character that allows them to hide it. I imagine with Michael, it also assisted in the grooming process a great deal. What, what, what better way to, to groom than through your public persona, you know? And, and, and he actually folded uh, his grooming into his public persona. Well, I didn't have a childhood. And because I didn't have a childhood, I have to spend all my time with children. And I have to have little children who are not related to me sleep in my bed with me. Well, there are plenty of people out there in the world who never had a childhood, who had to work, you know, as slaves, as children. And they don't go, uh, you know, having kids sleep in their bed with them. Um, so that, that's really incongruent, especially when you look at the fact that his brothers <laughs> worked right alongside with him and weren't doing that. You know, they didn't have a childhood either. Um, so, you know, it, this is all part of that media machine. They had to explain the reason why he's always around kids. And I think the most important thing is, um, you know, after the Chandler event, uh, you know, uh, he, he was advised and, and especially even after the um, the the trial that he went through where he was acquitted. He was advised not to be around and alone with children. What happened? He continued. And so that's when you see someone who has something that they can't control, right? You can't control it. Um, and I think we saw him, um, you know, as he get, got to the later part of his years, um, you know, it, he really changed. Do you have any idea of the number of children that were affected and the number of employees that were consistently assisting him. What I can tell you is that we generally in sexual abuse cases where we have prolific abusers, um, what, what, would we, what we would call him is an affixed pedophile. And a fixed pedophile, someone who's not just an opportunist who may have uh, you know, uh, acted out in some manner against one or two people. And a fixed pedophile is someone who it, it's, it's ingrained in them and they're, they, it's one, of, it's one of the crimes that Kristen could probably talk about that, um, that, that, that uh, the recidivism rate is, is just through the roof. But they do not age out of this type of crime. They can do it all the way till they're 80, 85, 90 years old. And their sex drive for abuse is just 
through the roof. It's, it's not like a normal sex drive. Um, we generally only find out about 10% of victims um, in, in these cases. And, you know, we generally think, you know, that there's probably 90% out there that'll never come forward that we'll never find out about. So if you look at the, um, the amount of time that he was, he was engaging in this misconduct, the amount of people that he had access to all over the world, I, I think the numbers are staggering. Um, and, you know, we do know that there are several people that, that he did settle claims with. You know, it's not just Jordan Chandler. Um, there, there was the, uh, you know, the son of his housekeeper. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big problem. And, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, what the public knows, what the public doesn't know, what's available to public and what's been scrubbed. Because you have to remember that when you're dealing with an entertainer of this nature, his, his, his music, right, um, and his intellectual property, that's, that's an asset. And so the company has a duty to monetize that asset. You can't monetize that asset if that person's been canceled. Uh, so they, they have a, a vested interest in scrubbing all of that negative history and, uh, and re-imaging this person. And, and that's something that's done 24 seven. Not just that, you also have to look at different markets. Michael Jackson isn't the same person in the US market as he is in China, as he is in Brazil, as he is in other places of the world. Certain other places of the world don't have the same uh, amount of understanding that we do about childhood sexual abuse and the same level of tolerance that we do. Uh, and, and so for that reason, even if someone's been canceled here, it doesn't mean that they can't still monetize the asset in, in another country or location. So for these survivors that you're finding out about and those who are coming forward, the statute of limitations in California at least has run. Is there any justice or support available to them at this point? So it hasn't run in California. We're under a window. Um, we, we, we've got a three-year window that was, was able to get passed to allow people with stale claims to come forward um, because of uh, mechanics related to sexual abuse that, 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 they're not, that they're not to be blamed for. You know, it's not their fault they don't come forward at an earlier time. It's they're psychologically incapable un of doing it. And that's the reason we're able to get windows. So right now, there's still an open window uh, until the end of next year. After that, uh, it goes to a, um, a, a standard where, you know, you have to at least 40 years old and sometimes even, even longer. Um, so we do have a, a fairly generous statute of limitations in California. And in, in certain states, there's no statute of limitations at all. So it really depends on where this person was abused. Did your two clients find solace in just the overwhelming public support that finally came forward after Finding Neverland was released? I'm sorry, Leaving Neverland. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, I, I think, and that, and that, that's with any victim. Uh, just, you know, a victim, their, their, their first thought is, look, people are not going to believe me. Uh, people are going to be yelling at me, screaming at me, um, and, and I'm going to be outcast. Um, I'm going to be this person who's not going to be a part of society anymore because of what happened to me. And, you know, the reality is usually much, much different. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's a good thing when, when, when clients get to see that firsthand, um, when, they, when they get an, an, an out pouring of support, um, even if it's in the face of other people calling you a liar. You know, it's still good to see that.
Um, so yeah, I, I think that was healing. And that's one of the reasons why they decided to do it. Um, you know, their cases were dismissed one time, uh, the civil cases, and we went on appeal, won the appeal, came back, the court essentially dismissed them again on the same grounds, new judge, right? We're back on appeal and I'm confident we're going to win again and we're going to be back in litigation. Those things you can't really control as a client. Um, there are certain things that, that, are, that are just out of, out, of, out of your hands. What you can do is control uh, your, your, your narrative. And sometimes you can do that through a documentary. So that's something that we did support because at the end of the day, being able to tell your story is, is, is really healing. And you know, sometimes that's a healing process that takes, that takes case in trials. Sometimes uh, you, you don't get that. Um, so yeah, we did support it. So speaking of kind of public perception, I think it's important to note that two of the defendants that we're speaking about today have since died. And the world, I feel safe saying, really seemed to collectively mourn their passing. There was massive media coverage. There were huge funerals. It was nonstop on CNN and every other channel. And very little was discussed, if anything at all, regarding their victims and the crimes that they were accused of. So I have two questions on that. One, how did your clients handle the news of those deaths? And do you think there's a way for the media to be more sensitive to the clients? And then how do you think we should treat these celebrities? You know, once they are dead, is there room to acknowledge their art and the contributions they've made while acknowledging the harm they've done? How do we look at their legacies? Yeah, so, you know, um, you know when, when, when Kobe Bryant died, it, you know, it was such a, it was difficult because it was such a um, horrific uh, event, you know, for him to die with, in the way he did with his daughter, and the, the other members of the, in the helicopter. I mean, it really was just horribly, horribly tra uh, tragic. And I think that in some regards, I mean, the, he as an individual um, had already become somewhat iconic, but for him to die in that kind of, um, you know, tragic event like that made the media somewhat more understandable in their reaction. I think, uh, you know, I, th there wasn't a lot of space for, you know, any counter narratives and, you know, neither my client nor I were certainly interested in, in you know, putting one out. Um, so I don't know, so I, I think that was a very difficult scenario. Um, you know, it, I think that given the, the, the way that he died um, was um, just hard for there to be much, you know, other discussion about you know, things other than, you know, the horrific nature of his, passing. So I, you know, I think it's one of those situations where I think, I think my client just had to, um, you know, um, just get through it. Yeah, with mine, it, it, it's, it was really bittersweet, you know, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, they were, they were horribly abused um, by this man and, 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 you know, they were relieved to see him no longer there. Uh, in, in, in a way that he could potentially hurt, th hurt them again. But on the other hand, you have to remember they were groomed for years and years and years. Um, you know, he, he married one of them, gave him a ring in a secret ceremony with a, you know, the blood ceremony, 
And so they, you know, it's 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 really important to understand the bond uh, that's created between an abuser and a victim, especially when they're victimized at a young age for through so many years. An, an abuser is only able to get get that close to them when they're missing something in their life. You know, they're missing a connection with a parent or a, or, or a family figure and they insert themselves there and they become that parent or family figure. So that, that, that close bond is something that you can't just break by letting someone know that they abused you, you know? Um, so, so that's why in many ways it's bittersweet, especially when you layer on top of that, um, their adult understanding that this person had a problem, this person was sick, this person did not have people around him uh, who, who, who were there to help him. And um, that, that ended up probably leading to his demise. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say it's, you know, bittersweet, conflicting, um, yeah, confusing. So Vince and Kristen, I think predominantly that leads to the question for you both. Both Bill Cosby and Michael Jackson contributed to art, music, television in ways that they were icons before this happened. How do we deal with them as a society now? What should we as a culture do with these prolific serial abusers who have a history before that? Well, what I'd say is that's that's up to to everyone. You know, that's that's an individual choice. Uh, to me, if I you know, <laughs> this happens quite a bit. If I hear his music, I you know get nauseous and 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 I just you know it's the last thing I want to hear because what I think of is um, you know how how he abused kids and he used the music to do that, um, and you know it just just makes me sick. But um, you know, it's an individual choice. I know that some people have been healed through his music and they like his music. And some people might be able to make that distinction between the artist and the art and the abuser. Um, personally, at this point in time, I, I can't do that. Um, I have no interest in doing that, but you know, that's, that's just me. I know more, a lot more than most people do about this issue. I agree with Vince. I think it's definitely a personal decision. Um, I know, for example, with Bill Cosby, I have the same visceral reaction, right? Um, and that Vince was describing, you know, as investigating all of these, speaking to all of the women, not just those that we put on the stand. So it, it, it is a visceral reaction. However, I think that, you know, to be objective in responding to your question, and the reason I think it is individual is, you know, some of the faces, some of the issues that we had to face, you know, in complaints, in trial, in all of these actions and evaluating and assessing the viability of cases, we do have to take into account how the public will react if someone of this stature is accused of a very, very vicious crime um, and how that will play into any uh, case that we pursue. Um, and I think that, and I know it's kind of going beyond your question, but just in terms of, for example, Bill Cosby, you know, as a black female, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, watching TV growing up, people who looked like me were drug dealers, were, you know, criminals, you know, the public didn't really portray black people the way that, you know, in a positive way that, you know, my, my white counterparts got to see people play on TV. 
Um, so I think that I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, being able to see a physician with a United family on TV was fantastic. And I don't want to take that away from someone else just because it gives me a visceral reaction. So I don't want to be, you know, naive in, in saying, of course, no one should watch TV, even though, or excuse me, should watch Bill Cosby, even though that's the way I feel. Because just as I don't want anyone to project their judgment upon me, I wouldn't want to project my judgment upon them. Those are great answers. On the Cosby case, Kristen, I think a lot of people are very confused and have a lot of misconceptions about the reversal and the, va the vacate of his conviction. Can you explain that and what really happened? I can try. <laughs> um, yeah, so what happened? <laughs> Great question, right? So what happened was the court found, the higher court, the Supreme Court found that there was an agreement in place um, prior to his prosecution that precluded our office from criminally prosecuting him. And that's really the easy answer. But if you don't mind, Renee, I'd like to take a step back and kind of give you a little bit of more meat on those bones. I was hoping you would. <laughs> um, long story short, in 2004, Andrea Constan was sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby. 2005, she reports it to the police. January 2005, she reports it to the police. February 2005, the district attorney at the time, Bruce Castor, closed the case. Went on TV, said we're not prosecuting Bill Cosby closed the case and actually issued a press release that said he would reconsider the decision should the need arise. Fast forward, as you mentioned earlier, Renee, um, many, many women came out and said, hey, I was sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby. Many, many women came out, many, many women were ignored until one of our local comedians, Hannibal Buress, did a comedic routine. He's you know, laughing about a speech that Bill Cosby gave called the pound cake speech. Um, where he was essentially um, criticizing single Black mothers, um, as well as stating that Black men were getting disproportionately stopped by police because it was their fault because of what they were wearing, specifically baggy pants. Um, and there were other things in this pound cake speech that, you know, I hope I don't have to convince you that were incredibly offensive. Um, as a result, Hannibal Barres used that in his comedic routine. And he said, you know, hey, take a look. You know, this guy's trying to tell us, pull your pants up, Black people. Yeah, but you know what? You're raping women. So turn the crazy down a couple notches, you know? And that's what he was using as his comedic routine. And people are laughing. Oh, that's so funny. He's like, no, you know, I'm a comedian up here. You know, I'm paraphrasing. I am trying to make you guys laugh, but seriously, Google my name is nothing. But Google Bill Cosby rape and you will get Google page after Google page after Google page. Well, it just so happened that someone was recording that um, and it went viral. And interestingly, despite the fact that there were 60 women out there prior to that saying, hey, I was sexually assaulted in the same exact way that woman 59 was, no one was listening. But now people actually, you know, gave these women a platform and were actually hearing what they had to say. Sadly, that was what was necessary to hear their voice. But thankfully, their voices were heard. Um, and that was about 10 years after prosecution had been declined initially. 
Um, and John probably knows this, um, being a former prosecutor, you know, cases get declined all the time um, and they get reopened all the time because, you know, what you have back then may not be what you have now. Um, and so similarly, we, re we reopen the, the case um, and I can get into more details, but just to kind of streamline the answer to your question, we reopened the case um, under a new administration. And so the DA who had declined the case, DA Castor, was no longer in office. Um, the person who was in office, the district attorney at the time, um, was DA Furman. Um, and she was actually running for judge. So regardless of whatever decision she made, she was not going to be the one prosecuting Bill Cosby. Um, but her first assistant or whoever won the new election uh, was going to be the one prosecuting Bill Cosby. Now, interestingly, Renee, well, let me get to that in a second. So we were looking, um, you know, at the case. I remember I was called into um, now Judge Furman, but then DA Furman's office. And she says, is there an agreement out there that says we can't prosecute him? I'm kind of taken aback, like, no, why? And she was like, well, can you just relook in the case file, you know, make sure, whatever. Um, well, it turns out Bruce Castor was going on TV stating, and Bruce Castor, just by way of reminder, was the DA who declined charges. Um, going on TV, you know, stating, hey, you know, they can't prosecute Bill Cosby, they can't prosecute Bill Cosby. Now, I'm sure everyone's thinking, why would he say that unless it's true? Well, he was running for DA against Kevin Steele. And, you know, I think that that may have had something to do with it. But nevertheless, now he's saying that we cannot prosecute Bill Cosby. So, understandably, then DA Furman at the time, and this is all on the record, so I'm not like, you know, disclosing anything that's private. DA Furman at that time emails Bruce Castor, asks him, Did, is there an agreement that I should be aware of? You know what? No, he says, um, he states, um, and I quote, I never said we would not prosecute Cosby. So um, we then have, you know, we file charges, we arrest him. Bruce Castor then, you know, goes on TV some more, says we can't prosecute Bill Cosby. As a result, there is a basically a due process hearing, you know, opportunity to be heard. Basically, this the defendant is arguing at this point, and this is pre-trial, but after arrest. The defendant at that time is saying, hey, judge, there should be no trial here because the state or the district attorney's office is violating my constitutional rights because the prior DA said I couldn't be prosecuted. So why are they prosecuting me here now? So we had a two and a half day hearing where Bruce Castor obviously got on the stand. He was cross-examined by my colleague. And one of the you know real core things of cross-examination is, well, where's this agreement? Bruce Castor points to that press release, which again states, reconsider the decision should the need arise. He also was unequivocal. He said, look, I never made an agreement, but I said, as long as Cosby sits for a deposition, we won't prosecute him for any crimes. So, um, you know, and, and he also had stated a number of other things, such as he made that statement to Andrea's attorneys. We also called Andrea's attorneys to the stand. I directed them. That never happened. Um, so I say all that because, and this is the interesting, I think, legal concept, and that's why I started by saying, I don't know what happened, Renee, because the court, the lower court who actually got to hear Bruce Castor, hear the, the cross-examination, which, you know, he told various reporters who were all in the audience at the time, 
that we could prosecute Bill Cosby. And so he said, oh, I never said that. And so, you know, we were able to point. So you're telling me that this reporter right here is a liar. Yeah. And this one too. Yeah. And that one too. Like it literally was something that, you know, you couldn't even make up if you wanted. It's like one of those, aha, like things. But anyway, um, the court ultimately found in his 143 page opinion that there were multiple inconsistencies between Castor's account to the press and his testimony. Um, there's no basis in the record to support the contention that there was ever an agreement or a promise not to prosecute the defendant. There was no basis in the record to support justifiable reliance on the part of the defendant either. And I can get into that as another legal concept. But the one thing I want to emphasize is the court found Bruce Castor incredible, therefore saying this never happened. Why would he have done this? Well, he was probably running against Kevin. And instead of saying, hey, you know, I didn't want to prosecute Bill Cosby because at that time he was Dr. Huxtable and we were going to lose. Instead, he wanted to play games. And instead of just, you know, saying that, which I wouldn't have agreed with, but at least being honest, he didn't say that. He wanted to be the one who was tough on crime, I guess, and, you know, and pretend like he was out for the victim by stating, hey, I gave him, you know, immunity because I wanted Andrea Constantine to get money. He, I think, cooked up that story. And so the court found that he was lying. The Supreme Court in uh, Pennsylvania found, um, excuse me, the Superior Court in Pennsylvania agreed with the trial court's decision, not only their credibility finding, but their legal conclusion. And then we get to the Supreme Court and all of a sudden, there is an agreement, a fact determination, which I guess I'm just too new in my legal career because I really thought that the appellate courts looked at findings of law and look at the, looked at conclusions of law, but hey. So now you just brought up <laughs> the Supreme Court opinion. In anywhere does that in that opinion does the Supreme Court exonerate Mr. Cosby or no. say he didn't do it? Absolutely not. Um, and I think you know, while I respectfully disagree with the findings of the court. They don't say that at all. They don't say that at all. And I don't think that they, I should say that they did make a fact finding. So I'm a fact determination. So I shouldn't necessarily say this, but that wouldn't be a decision that they could say anyway. But no, they did not say that he did not commit the crime, but they did exonerate him because they eliminated his conviction. So he wasn't acquitted, right? Because a jury did find that he in fact sexually assaulted Andrea Constant. But what the court did say was that we as the prosecutors violated his constitutional rights. We violated the due process clause by, you know, entering into an, by not allowing our predecessor's words, which was, I'm not gonna prosecute you, um, stand. Despite the fact that we didn't think that ever was stated, the court agreed with us, the superior court agreed with us too. Do you think justice has ultimately been done in this case? Or will it ever be? So I gave a lot of thought to that over the, you know, many, many, many times that I, I was a prosecutor. And, you know, I've gotten many, many convictions and I've gotten some, you know, uh, not guilties, gotten great verdicts, gotten some not great verdicts. Um, 
But I think that the determination, and this is just me personally, I feel like the, determina the determination of whether or not justice was served really falls in the hands of the survivors. And not just the survivors who the case is for, right? Because we were only prosecuting the case for one survivor, and that was Andrea Constant. But there were other um, survivors of Cosby in the audience as well who didn't have their day in court per se, but they were there to support Andrea. And they were also there for vindication for themselves. So when you ask me, was justice done? I think that it really is a question for the victim. And I think one of the things in my conversations with Andrea and kind of also hearing her speak, she also, I just wanna give a shout out to her, wrote a book. So please everyone buy it. The Moment by Andrea Constant. She's like a superstar. Um, she was heard. She was treated with humanity. She was treated with dignity. She was treated with respect, you know? And that was something she didn't get from our office the first time around, right? And whether you get a conviction, if you get a conviction, but you treat your survivor like crap, is that justice? Maybe for some victims, maybe they just wanna be heard, but, but you know, when you are able to really um, show your survivor that you believe them and give them the opportunity to be heard, I really truly believe that that is a form of justice for many people. I can tell you that many of the other survivors of Cosby felt a sense of justice on that conviction. I can also tell you that many people who hadn't disclosed their sexual abuse to authorities and still haven't felt a sense of justice just from the Cosby conviction because it really stood for a lot, right? It meant that there are prosecutors and law enforcement out there who are going to try these really tough cases. And when we say tough, like, all sex, I'm sure John and Vince can agree, all sex abuse cases are tough. I think you may have said that earlier, John, uh, Vince, but, um, you know, when you go in after someone who's high profile, who has endless resources, I mean, I think he had 22 attorneys, like, throughout the entirety of that whole thing, you know, and we're just, like, a governmental entity, right? Um, so I say all that because the power dynamics can sometimes cause people not to want to prosecute these cases or even litigate these cases. But by taking this case in and actually getting a conviction, I think it's said to a lot of survivors, hey, the uh, prosecutors will take tough cases and hey, a jury can find a conviction. This has been an amazing conversation. I just have one last question for each of you. The point of this podcast is really to focus on alternate routes to justice. And in fact, the National Center was founded after, in the aftermath of a very, very high profile case. Um, Sunny Von Bulo, who is the mother of our founders, her, her children started our center after they very publicly came out and said that they thought that the criminal justice system had failed them but they did manage to successfully pursue a civil suit. So what impact do you feel after these types of cases, taking either the civil route or finding another alternative to seek justice can have in achieving a measure of healing for your victims? Well, what we always tell our clients is that, um, you know, what's most important for them is uh, from them going from being a victim to being a survivor. And, and there's many different aspects of that, of that journey, um, potentially filing a civil case or 
pursuing someone in the criminal courts, uh, those are just two facets of, of this big road. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, if, if we get, get them closer, um, then, then it's something worth doing. Um, you know, there's, there's only certain things we can do through the civil system. Um, unfortunately, we can't take back what happened to them. Um, and, you know, it, it's a very imperfect system, you know, but uh, I, I, I have yet to find a client who, who didn't find some form of healing through uh, the civil process. And, and that even includes uh, ones who, who, who were not able to successfully prosecute a case for, because of uh, a statute of limitations or something. You know, there's something to be said for standing up for yourself and, and, and trying to do something, whether you're not, uh, wh whether or not you're, you're successful, you know, the, the, uh, the healing comes from, from doing something about it, not, not from the result. You know, I, I think that um, probably both of the other panelists would agree um, that the criminal justice system just serves so few uh, survivors of, of sexual assault. Um, the majority of survivors don't ever even, you know, report to the police uh, to start with. And even the ones that do, the percentages that actually get investigated, that get um, charged and end up in some sort of positive outcome is just very, very small. And so I think that looking for other alternatives, it doesn't have to be a civil lawsuit. It can be, you know, we've had cases that just decide that they want to engage in media or depending on the person, uh, there may be an internal complaint process somewhere, whether it's with a church or uh, with a hospital that a doctor works for. Um, there's a lot of different avenues that are not just limited to the criminal justice system that I don't think most survivors um, think about. And so I think helping them identify what all the options are um, and seeing what might be a good fit for them that may not even be dependent on something like a statute of limitations it can be um, incredibly helpful and empowering for different survivors. I couldn't agree more with my two very esteemed colleagues and I'm just so thankful to even share a podcast panel with them. And I thank you so much, Renee, um, as well. Um, I would echo exactly what they said and just point out that one of the things that John pointed out is even just giving them the opportunity to be heard in a forum that will treat them fairly and, you know, and, and whether it's media, whether it's, you know, it, facilitating an internal administrative process. But I think one of the key things to always bring um, to your clients is just the ability to explain every, every single process that's available to them so that they can make an informed decision about which route they want to take and what the routes could look like. Um, and so I couldn't agree more with what my colleagues stated. Well, I want to thank Vince, John, and Kristen for joining us today. We are going to put information on them and their websites into the show notes for this page. So please check them out. And thank you for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. 
This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.